0: One hour less sleep and you're still here. That's awesome. I'm glad you are. If you're joining us from home, I'm glad you're here as well, uh, checking things out. We are in a series that we're just calling Joseph. We're kind of doing a story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And we've been pulling on threads that have all started in chapter 37. And they've, some of them run all the way through the story, Some of them are in front of the story, but we're trying to get a really good picture of what God's doing in that story, and so we just keep looking at things that go all the way through. We're going to do that same thing today, and I guess technically, um, the thread is going to start in chapter 37 as we get into it. So um, this morning, I want to look at um, the life of Judah, but I want to get there starting with where we were last week. Last week I talked about uh, a theory that some rabbis had of how the story of Joseph went down, that he wasn't actually sold by his brothers. And I, I, went through that with you so that you would think critically, you would get into the text. I didn't actually tell you what I thought. I thought the way they went about it was really helpful. It Helped me put the story together in ways that I hadn't before. But here's my conclusion. I think the brothers sold Joseph. I, I think um, we're going to see that maybe they didn't pull him up out of the pit after all. But I think they were responsible, which it says, where's Reuben then? You have to identify where Reuben is. I think he's off of the sheep. He didn't have the courage to confront his brothers and stop them in person. So he's got to find a way to get around and get Joseph out of that pit because that was his intention And in that environment, you had to keep the sheep moving. If you didn't, they would actually destroy the grazing ground. So I think he went with them to find a way to circle around and rescue his brother. Now, I can't prove all of that, but what I can tell you is that chapter 38, the chapter that follows all of this stuff happening, makes me think that the brothers were involved in this. Chapter 38 is surprising, shocking, disgusting. It's graphic. You, um, if you were telling this story and you wanted to make sure that your family history was told in a way that was helpful for other people, you would leave this chapter out forever. Like, you wouldn't want to talk about any of the stuff that's in there. And yet, it makes it in the text. which raises all kinds of questions. Some Christians have looked at this and said, man, this is out of order. This doesn't make any sense. This is just kind of a story that's got thrown into this. When you come upon it, just read through it real fast and get to the other side of it. There have been some who have gone so as far as to say, when you see this story of Judah kind of planted in Joseph's story, this is evidence, they say, that people, different people were putting the scriptures together and they were just throwing things in there and you really can't trust the order of stuff. Really, they would almost get to the part where they would say you really can't trust what you're reading because different people had different objectives and they were putting it in there. I I think you're going to find out as we talk about this that this story is supposed to be there even though it's disturbing and messed up. There's a lot of disturbing stuff in it and there's a lot of stuff that goes against all the cultural norms. Judah, the main person in chapter 38, leaves his family. His dad's not dead. That did not happen in the ancient culture. That's prodigal son kind of stuff. Leaving the family before your father died, you didn't do that. On top of that... He gets married, and his father doesn't arrange the marriage. These are things that weren't done. No, you didn't do that back then. It was very disrespectful. It wasn't honoring, but this guy was going his own way. And the question is, is there anything in the text that would cause us to ask, why is he doing this? Why is he separating from the family, doing his own thing? And I actually think there is. I think in Genesis 37:26, we see this. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Goes on in 27, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him after all. He is our blood, our own flesh and blood. Which is why, you see that, let's not touch him. We'll have somebody else drag him out. We'll have somebody else sell him. We're going to say our hands are clean of that because we didn't actually put our hands on him in this process. It's why they could stand in Egypt years later and say, the only thing we did was listen to his pleading because they think the way they went about this gives them clean hands. And yet, here's what happens. At least I've seen this happen so many times. Have you ever been with a group of people and you made a decision together to do something, and then the something that you agreed on doesn't turn out well. Like it wasn't fun or it was a terrible experience. What happens almost every time after something like that takes place? What's the one question that people ask? Whose idea was this? Right? Because the group doesn't want to take responsibility. The group went along, they'd be like, I wouldn't have gone along with it, except he said it. He came up with the idea. Who's the one who has the idea in the text? Judah. The one who came up with the idea. And now, this family, the whole family, is full of guilt. I mean, they sold their brother into slavery. The whole family covered it up with their father. Even Reuben went along with the lie that his brother had been killed. And they had to sit there and watch their father mourn. And I'm telling you, they would have looked at him and said, you man, if you hadn't come up with this idea, we wouldn't be dealing with this. And so his brother separates. His brother steps away from his family because he can't deal with the weight of all of that guilt and shame and unfortunately, what happens is recorded in, the, in chapter 38, and it's a wreck. And what we're about to find out is that for this plan to take place, for this thing that God wants to do to turn the family around, the story of Joseph, we talked about that weeks earlier, he's not just going to need one brother to get their, their life figured out. He's going to need another one to figure it out, too. So both of them, both of them have utter wrecked their lives. Joseph was an arrogant kid who would speak to his brothers with disrespect. And God was going to have to take him and put him in a place where he could reshape and say, listen, I want you to be redirected here. Judah, selfish, uses people. He's a terrible person. And yet, if God doesn't do a work in his heart, there's going to be problems. What's interesting about these two brothers in this story right now is that it raises a question. And the question is this. Is the problem in the family? Like Jacob seems to have done such a terrible job that all the brothers are messed up. And is the problem in their blood? Is it... Is it something that they're going to carry for the rest of their lives and they're just going to accept who they are? Because it appears that that's how Judah answers the question. I was greedy, I sold my brother. This is who I am. I'm leaving my family, I'm going to pursue all my own interests. And he does that. Is it in the blood? Or is there any hope for these guys at all? Um... There's a song that we heard and we thought, this is about these two brothers. I want you to listen to this and see if you agree. When chapter 38 rolls around, it seems to answer the question, it's in the blood and Judah is a terrible person. In fact, I read a I read a 40-page academic paper on this chapter because it's such an interesting chapter. People um, talk about it quite a bit because it's kind of, it feels like an outlier. And one of the reasons they wrote this was to help you understand the language and the phrasing and things that were omitted in the story. We're all trying to communicate this one thing. Judah is a despicable person. Like, they're trying to emphasize it. They're writing it that way with emphasis that this guy is horrible. But the other thing that they were trying to do is they were trying to show through language connections, all of these uh, rare words being used, some phrases and other things like that, that it was also connected. That the story of Judah has to be seen in the story of Joseph. And if you don't, you miss what God's doing. He might be a despicable person, but let's try this on for size. Without Judah, the story that you know of Joseph doesn't end the way it does. Without Judah, the story that God writes in history is not the same story. So this guy has an important place. And yet what we find is he's blowing his life apart. So we're going to go through 38. We're going to do it quickly. I'm going to give you some highlights and I'm going to just try to tell you the story so you can get an idea and understanding. Like one of the highlights is verse 1 of 38. It says, At this time, right at the beginning. Um, that's a phrase that was meant to be there to help you understand that what's going on in 38 is layered on everything else that you're reading so when you go on and you read about Joseph the stuff that's happening with Judah is happening at the same time so they want you to know hey these stories are unfolding they're on different paths but they're at the same kind of pace and so they're a part of this and there'll be other parts that are gonna connect here too Um, In 38, Judah leaves his family. We talked about how crazy that is. He chooses a wife, also not the norm, except here's what we know. We we know um, the guy's name that he uses to find the wife, but we never know the wife's name. And the rabbis were quick to point out that that's an odd thing, that lineage was important, and you would often put, like, begat. Like, he begat, and then you would... You would get maybe who the wife was, but they said she's not in there. In fact, there's only one woman mentioned through the whole chapter of 38, and it's a form of disrespect that Judah had for others. He didn't respect anybody and likely didn't even care about his wife, and we'll look at that in a little bit. But it comes out in 38 in the way he talks about and does some things. Now, Judah goes on and has three kids and they grow up to be old enough to marry. So a lot of time has passed here. It's going really fast. And he gets to a place where he has these three sons and he marries off the oldest. But the scriptures tell us he's an evil guy and so the Lord takes his life. And as soon as that happens, what gets introduced into the story is a widow. And there is a, a cultural custom That took place that that everybody knew about including Judah and initially he goes along with it so the custom was that the second born would have relations with the widow and they would do so until there was a son that was born but that son would not be his heir it would be the firstborns it would actually be heirs firstborn and so the inheritance would pass down to him And it was a form of protecting the mom. The widow wouldn't be left destitute. She would have a son who would also have an inheritance who could care for her. This was how the process was set up so that people wouldn't be left out in the cold and the dark. And so, so Judah says, this is the right thing to do. Um, Give your daughter-in-law an heir. Except the scriptures record that the second son is a bigger jerk than the first one. Because he figures out that if he has a boy with her, he doesn't get anything out of it. In fact, if he has a boy with her, he's not going to get the inheritance that that kid's going to get. And so he starts having relationships with her in a way that's impossible for her to be pregnant. In essence, he starts to sexually abuse this woman. She has no recourse. So God fights for her and takes the life of son number two. Now, now what's the custom? Well, the custom is the third son's up, except in this case, he's too young. He can't marry. And so Judah says, by the way, Tamar is the named widow. She's the, the hero of the story, the heroine, right? She's, she's awesome. Um, and she, she stands up for what's right and just. You're going to love her. And um, she's told, listen, I'll give you my third son to accomplish this custom, but you have to wait until he's older. So he sends her home as a widow. She's to dress as a widow, live as a widow. She cannot marry. She'll, she just goes and lives with her family. Um, this would be a form of poverty for her that would be pretty, that would be pretty rough. And she waits. But the Scriptures tell us that Judah decides in his mind that the reason his boys are dying is because of her. She's the one who's causing them to die. Like never crosses his mind that maybe these are evil boys who are kind of following the ways of dad and have done some wicked things. And so God's standing up, never, it's her. And so he decides, I'm never ever going to let my third son near this woman. I'm not going to tell her that. I'm going to dangle out the promise, but I'm never going to do this, which puts Tamar's future and security in jeopardy. Now, the thing is, she's a pretty smart girl, and she figures out the character of Judah. She figures out that he is a despicable man. And so, Um, she looks for an opportunity. Now here, we'll go down and we're going to see an opportunity will present itself. In chapter um, 38, verse 12, Judah's wife dies. Still don't know her name. It just says his wife dies. And then it says, in the middle of verse 12, when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnath. When Judah had recovered from his grief. That's a little deceptive. Because we have seen in the text so far, somebody who is actually grieving. If you remember back to chapter 37, all the brothers tell dad, holding this blood drip coat, that their son is dead. And he goes into mourning. And look, this is the kind of mourning that's described. This is chapter 37, verse 35. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. You couldn't console him. This wasn't sweeping under the rug kind of grief. This was, this is going to take a long time. My heart is broken over this situation. And if you look at Judah, and you look at where it says, and he took some time for his grief, and you think back, you've got the wrong picture. Uh, The rabbis are quick to point out that the way this is written in the text and it's written intentionally this way, is that the writer wants you to know that she died, he grieved, and he went to work and it all happened at the same time. It was that fast. She died, I grieve, I'm going to work. It means very little to him. Now. Tamar finds out that he's on his way to work. Because she knows his character, she decides to dress up like a prostitute. I know, it's in the text, sorry. She dresses like a prostitute and sits along the side of the road that he's going to be journeying on. And you know what? He takes the bait. And he offers to give her a goat at some time in the future, I'll send you a goat for this exchange. And this girl is wise. She refuses his IOU. No, nope, not going to happen. You're going to have to, and this is a word that she uses in the text. It's rare. It's rarely used. She says, I want you to leave a deposit. I, this is a word that means I want you to personally guarantee that you're gonna actually deliver this goat. And what I'm gonna require for this personal guarantee is I'm gonna require your identity. I'm not joking. What she asks for is like collecting his driver's license, his credit cards, and his social security number. She gets his staff, which was his, a place of authority in the family. It would have gotten his signet ring, which is the way he would have signed contracts. That's how people would have known that was his. And his sash, that identified whose family you were a part of. He gives all of those up. Doesn't seem to care about his own identity. Just his needs. I just want my needs met. Whatever it takes. He, despicable. Right? Well, her goal... Her goal in doing this is that she's hoping that she will become pregnant. That she will have a boy that will be the heir that was rightfully hers. And sure enough, she gets pregnant. And Judah, because he's been a stand-up righteous guy this whole time, decides he's going to make a stand-up righteous call with her. And so he gets a group of people to go... Drag her out, and he's going to have her burned to death for being pregnant. And it's this time that she takes out these three things his staff, his seal, his cord. Says, Take this to Judah and tell him that the person who owns these things is the father of the child that I'm carrying. His response is recorded in verse 26 of 38. Judah recognized them and said she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her my son Shelah This is the first time in the text that Judah admits he has an integrity problem like i something's off with me something's Broken here. And, I, and I've got an issue. F- first time it's ever recorded. Now, just in case, just in case, some of you are like, oh, that Tamara, she does not sound like a very good girl. I don't know about her. I would say, be careful. Be careful. Tamara is one of three ladies who end up in the lineage of Jesus. She's the first one who's mentioned. Why? Because she stood up for what was right and just. And by doing so, did it in a way that confronted Judah who stopped and realized for the first time that the direction that he was headed for his life was wrong. And the scriptures seem to indicate from that point forward, there is a change that starts to show up in the way Judah is acting reacting. Things that you would never expect from a, a despicable man. For one... When the brothers head to Egypt to get grain for the first time, Judah is back with the family. Now maybe he did that because of the famine, but for whatever reason, he is now a part of them. They found a way to make up. They found a way to be together. And so he's there in that moment. Now if you'll recall, when they go down for the first time, Joseph is very skeptical whether the brothers have changed or not. He knows that they sold him last time. These are the kind of men they are. And he wants to know if there's been any change in their lives. And so he gets a test. And the first test is he takes their brother Simeon and he puts him in jail. And he says, I'll let him out when you return with my younger brother. He wants to know if his younger brother is even alive. Did you guys kill him too? Did you try and do away with your other rival? He he just wants to know how exactly this family has been living for the last 22 years. Now, here's what happens. The brothers go home with all of this grain, one of them still in jail, and they tell Jacob, we have to return with Benjamin or Simeon will stay in jail and nothing happens dad won't hear of it in fact the only reason he considers doing something is they start to run out of grain so it's been a while this could have been a year that has gone by they're letting their other brother rot in jail and Joseph had to be wondering what is happening why why are they they must not be any different and the brothers say listen we're going to starve to death unless we go down to Egypt and get more grain. But we cannot show up without Benjamin. You have to send him with us. And dad says, no. So Reuben, the oldest, the Bohor, the one who's supposed to smooth things over, he speaks up and he has a plan. <sighs> it's a terrible plan. He looks at Jacob and says, I guarantee that Benjamin will come back or if he doesn't, I will kill two of my own sons for you. Just think about who he just said that to. He said that to a guy who was unconsolable over the loss of one son who is scared to death to send his second son afraid that he will lose him too. And he's talking about taking the lives of his own kids? Jacob would never, never put him in a position where that would happen, where he would feel that kind of grief. Dismisses it outright, not listening to that. But there is another brother who's already lost two sons, who understands that grief, and he approaches dad with a different idea. This is chapter 43, verse 9. He says, I myself will guarantee his safety. I will be a deposit myself. Same rare word used. I'll deposit myself so you can hold me personally responsible for him. This guy was willing to trade his identity For prostitute and now he's willing to put on deposit his life for something bigger he's willing to serve his dad his family he's willing to say I'll do this selfless act I'll bear this responsibility myself and dad hears that and says okay you can go they get to Egypt Joseph is relieved Benjamin's alive that's good still not convinced about the hearts of his brothers and so he sets up a second test he frames Benjamin for stealing something from Joseph and he puts him in jail and this is going exactly like the worst possible way because these brothers are gonna have to go home and once again report that they've lost another brother except that's not what happens In chapter 44, verse 32, one of the brothers says this, Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all of my life. Guess what word is used? I said I would be a deposit. Now we're not talking theory anymore. What's going on is Benjamin's in jail. And Judah, 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 the guy who left the family, the guy who thought the idea of selling his brother for some money was a good idea, who went and married on his own, who was selfish, who just seemed to not care about any cultural norms, disregarded the care of Tamar and his care didn't care if she was destitute or not. This guy suddenly goes... One for one, my life for his. You let me go in jail, you set him free, I'll bear this myself. Are you kidding? Him? By the way, this happens to be the very act that convinces Joseph that something has changed in the lives of their brother because the very ringleader of this idea to sell him is now willing to offer up his own life. He's willing to do that. This guy who was willing to give his identity out for a one night stand is now willing to sacrifice his life for something bigger than himself. It's dramatic. Uh, By the way, I want to just point out this other connection with identity that happens with Joseph too. When Joseph is elevated in the court, he's given three things by Pharaoh. He's given something that designates his authority. He's given the ability to sign things, um, signet ring sort of thing. It's not a ring, but it's that ability. And he's given that cloak, the sign of whose family he is, both of these guys, the scriptures are indicating that God had to do a work on how they saw themselves because it wasn't in their blood, it was in their hearts. And if God could find a way to get in there and change their hearts, they could become the kind of men that God always made them and designed them to be. And, and this story is a story of two guys who God had to change their identity in order for this whole thing to work out. If Judah doesn't make the sacrifice at the end, Joseph doesn't believe that this is genuine. And yet, he makes this this sacrifice. And Joseph, whose identity has been changed, doesn't identify with Pharaoh, but with God himself. Now, I think this is worth noting. I think this is fascinating. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob calls all the brothers in. He's going to bless them before he passes. These are his sons. I'm going to give you a blessing. It's 25 verses of blessing. Five of the verses are given to Joseph. And indeed, Joseph is given two portions of the inheritance. Jacob gives him double portion, one for one son, one for the other son. So they both have a portion of wealth from the family. So he follows through and does that. But there's five verses for this guy named Judah in the Scriptures too. And let me read some of the stuff that's said about this guy. This is the start of verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. The bottom of verse 8. Your your father's sons will bow down to you. Verse 10 the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. God deals with identity with Judah and makes him into the family leader. Joseph doesn't get that role, Judah does. Judah, you're going to give direction for this family. Your throne is going to be established. In fact, your throne is going to be so established, the line of Jesus is going to come from you. This is the same guy in chapter 38 who's messing everything up. And yet God does a work in his heart and changes everything. Now, I don't know know about you. But I have discovered that some of the most important moments in my life, the best learnings, the things that have changed who I am the most have come from my biggest mistakes. And when I say my biggest mistakes, I mean I compound. Like I just don't do it once I do it a whole bunch of times and make it really messy before it suddenly dawns on me that this is a problem. I can go on for years at a time and make a mess. And that's what we see in the life of Judah. His life is so tangled up with a mess that he almost concludes, this is who I am. And I can tell you from having tangled messes in my life It's just tempting to excuse it that way. It's tempting to look at this pattern of thought that you've had about yourself for a long period of time. You know it's not necessarily healthy or good, but you keep going back to it and you've kind of just concluded, this is who I am. Or you've had this response and reaction that you've used with your coworkers or your family and you just keep doing it and it makes a mess but it's your reaction and you keep going to it and you feel hopeless and the thought is, this is just who I am. The stuff that I believe, the stuff that I say, there's not much hope, it's, it's in my blood. And we look at these tangled messes in our lives that we've put there and we even wonder, if God would want to have nothing to do with us. When it turns out, God may just be getting started. For 13 years, he pursued the heart of Joseph. It appears for over 20 years, he pursued the heart of Judah. And you know what I love about that? Judah's life could have been left under a weight of guilt and shame. He could have been buried underneath of that and he would have had it coming. But God had this idea that if he would just recognize that he wasn't as righteous as he thought he was, that he had some character issues that he needed to address, that if he could start to choose God's path over his own, that Judah's life, could become incredible. Judah's story could impact not just the story of Joseph, but even our story today. And my friends, I want you to know this. The same is true with your story. Doesn't matter how big the pile of mess is right now. The question is, are you willing to look at God and say, I will trust you with this mess? In some cases, you didn't make it. In others, you, you made the mess. You made the choices. You said those words. You believe those things. You think those thoughts. And yet, they do not have to define your life. And if you've gotten to the place where you just think this is just who I am and you're giving up, I want you to rethink that because God has a bigger, better plan for you than you can imagine. If you could just lean in, choose His way instead of yours, God could take your life to a different place. I offer you the story of Joseph and Judah. Two guys with lost identities that God repaired and did something great with. It could be your story too. Let me pray with you. God, it's so easy to look at the messes, to feel the guilt and the shame for the failures and things that we've done, and to just think, I... I've tried to change, I can't. I just think this is who I am. This stuff is just in my blood. And God, it looked that way for Judah too. But you pursued his heart. You didn't give up on him. You used a righteous woman to confront him with this idea that he just wasn't as righteous as he thought. He wasn't as good as he thought. He wasn't doing as well as he thought. And that if he could just trust your direction, his life could be different. And so, God, there are people who need to do that this morning. I ask you would lean in and whisper into their hearts. I'm talking about you. I'm, I'm asking for a different direction from you. I'm asking you to stop going in the path that you've been going on and just come to me. Let me start repairing your story preparing you for the future that you can't even imagine. God, you do that kind of work. You did it then, you do it now. And so I just ask that you would stir in the hearts of people that need to hear that this morning, that you would move them to follow after you instead. In Jesus' name, amen.